You're listening to the Divine Wisdom from the Kitchen podcast, hosted by Jess Echeverry, wife to a Catholic deacon, mother to five children, and dog mom to English bulldogs Chulo and Duke, as well as a survivor, speaker, woman and family advocate, and author. A convert to the faith, Jess goes beyond the class curriculum or church document and invites you to a conversation about our daily faith walk, our relationship with Christ and the church, and everything else in between. It's a heart-to-heart that leaves you with a good feeling in your soul. And now, without further ado, here's Jess. Hello, my friends and listeners. Thank you so much for joining me. It's Jess Atchaveri here on Mamaletics Divine Wisdom from the Kitchen. Today, I'm so happy to share with you, deeply from my heart, a special episode in, in reference to Black History Month and Women's History Month, February and March. And um, the title of this episode is Holy with a Hint of Hood, A Different Voice on Diversity and Race. And while, I mean, truthfully, it's basically my sharing about the impact of black and brown culture on my life as, as a white woman. Honestly, it's, it's a voice that um, usually is not heard. And if it speaks, it's silenced. And, um, and so I think it's really important for me to share um, a lot of my life experiences. And I really just want to go into depth about what that actually means right now in this world, in this culture, right? In this society that we are experiencing and living in right now. So let's talk about Black History Month. Um, I'm not sure if, you know, many of you know the history of Black History Month, but I mean, it is believed to be started by Dr. Carter G. Woodson. He's considered the father of black history. And I'm not going to go into super detail. Everybody has Google. You guys can Google this, open some books, read a little bit, learn your own stuff about this. But basically, just a few tidbits of information just to give good context to this is that Dr. Woodson, first of all, he's an author. So he's got tons of books out there and you can read them all and, and educate yourself on, on his position and where he comes from. Um, as far as the black and brown history, especially in this country. But um, he chose February uh, to build upon, right, for this black history education, right? He wanted it to be um, something that was studied deeply and profoundly. And so he chose February to build upon the celebrations that were already happening, especially in the black community, um, around Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass because both of their birthdays are are in February and they were being celebrated in the black community. So he he did this effort because he wanted to extend he, this idea of extending the study of black history. He wanted to move it from celebrating these two prominent men to celebrating the entire race which just wasn't happening at the time. He, he believed that black history should be celebrated every day as a part of American history. And, and I absolutely agree with that. I, I mean, I actually feel that way about all of history, right? Uh, Hispanic history, Asian history, uh, Christian history. <laughs> like, you know, it's like 
it's history. All of our peoples existed. We all existed in, in history together. So, and, and there are, are special aspects to all of the different races and cultures in American history. So I definitely agree with him on that. If you don't know much about Dr. Carter G. Woodson, then I hope you'll Google him and just educate yourself, your kids, your friends, you know, have some conversations over a cup of coffee about him, the father of black history, and how this all started and, and what his true purpose was for it. I mean, he is quoted in 1924 um, in regards to learning especially for black and brown people to learn about black history, he was quoted as saying, we are going back to that beautiful history and it is going to inspire us to greater achievements, right? So he truly believed that if black and brown people learned the truth about their history and, and just what a beautiful race they are, then that would inspire them to be greater people, so with a little bit of context, you know, about Black History Month and, and who it was started by and kind of the reason behind it, I, I wanted to get into my own personal experiences um, because, I, again, as a white woman, um, I'm very judged. And, and people might sound, people might hear them be like, oh, my gosh, white privilege. Um, set that aside. Please set that thought aside for a second and hear me out. Listen to what I have to say about this. Even though the color of my skin is white, I want to share with you some of the experiences that I've had in my life. So for me, I call this my black experiences, right? My black brown experiences. And, um, and, and as I share, I think that you'll gather a better understanding of why. Because for me, black history, black brown people that wasn't just a month in my life ever and it still isn't it still isn't my life is deeply impacted by black brown culture and people and experiences as a white woman I remember one of my earliest memories um, being in the car with my mom as a little girl right and she would have this eight track player in her car and on the eight tracks, and if you don't know what they look like, Google them, okay? Eight tracks had actually the picture of the album, or at least the artist on the front of it. There was these, there were like these big cassettes, right? Almost like a VCR cassette, but for your car, and instead of a video, it played music. And so it had the picture, and I remember this one. It was Donna Summer, this beautiful face on this eight track and how would it would always be on the front seat of the car and I'd just always look at it and I'd think she was so beautiful and my mom would pop that eight track into the car and blast and blast Donna Summer in the car and sing the top of her lungs and she was always so happy on the radio oh, oh on the, that was a song um I can't sing so forgive me but that was a song and and she it was it's just such a great memory and my memory of that was how beautiful Donna Summer's voice was and how much my mom loved her music as a black woman, okay? Um, when I got into school, when I got a little bit older, my teachers in school, my second grade teacher was Miss McQuay. Miss McQuay was amazing. I wanted to be Miss McQuay when I grew up. She was this light-skinned, black-brown woman who had 
pressed hair to her shoulders. And the most amazing thing about her was uh, to me, to me as a second grade little white girl in a public elementary school was during her class, sometimes in the afternoon, she would pull out a, a stool and she would sit in the middle of the class and she would open um, the book. It's called Where the Sidewalk Ends by Shel Silverstein. And she would spend time reading to the entire class these poems out of this book. And I remember just staring at her because the way she read sounded amazing. It drew me in. Her voice you know, the, the, the inflections, the tones, how she read those poems. I wanted to read like her. I wanted to sound like her. I wanted to, I wanted people to listen to me like they listened to her. And eventually, you know, one of the rewards of being a good reader in her class and kind of going through all the like little reading exercises, cause you went through them at your own pace was you could actually, if you became a proficient reader, you could sit on that stool and you can be the one who read to the class. And of course, that was my goal. And of course, I achieved that goal. And so that was me sitting on that stool in second grade being Miss McQuay. Miss McQuay was a black brown woman. Fourth grade, okay? Fourth grade, Mrs. Kurtz. I will never forget Mrs. Kurtz. Mrs. Kurtz would give out tests. We weren't allowed, obviously, to talk during tests, and I was a smart little kid. I was actually, believe it or not, if you didn't know, I was tested for the gifted program um, and was in it pretty much my entire academic career. So I was pretty fast at things. I was pretty quick. I was very smart, high IQ, and so I got through tests pretty quickly, and so I would always end up just sitting there with nothing to do and just, you know, looking around the classroom. Mrs. Kurtz would always do the same thing at a certain point during tests. And she would be sitting at her desk, facing the class, and she would go into her drawer, which you would hear the drawer open, and she would pull out a compact mirror with some facial powder or something on it. And she'd have this sponge, and she would open up this mirror, and I just remember her looking at herself in this mirror and just looking so happy with herself. And she would just pat She'd pat her nose. She'd use this little, this little powder, you know, sponge and, and get the oils off her nose and pat it and take it away. And she'd look and then she'd smile at herself. And then she would put that compact in. Mrs. Kurtz was a black woman, hair up in a bun, a little bit on the heavy set side, but beautiful. I wanted to look into a compact mirror and press my nose just like her. That's what I wanted to do. Ms. Anderson, my fifth grade teacher. Here's the thing about Ms. Anderson. Ms. Anderson had a daughter named Bridget. Now, Ms. Anderson was a black brown woman, and so was her daughter Bridget. And Bridget and I were super close. We were really close friends in fifth grade. And we would play on the playground, and we would sit next to each other in class, and we would talk about all, you know, everything. And Bridget would always talk about how wonderful her family was. She'd talk about her dad taking her to soccer and her mom and, you know, doing different things they would do together as a family. And I just remember listening to Bridget talk about her family. And, you know, as many of you know, I didn't I didn't have that type of, you know, my my mom and both my mom and dad who created me at home, number one. And, you know, being so happy with my home life, 
you know? And so I was mesmerized by the stuff that she would say. And I remember one time, I don't remember the circumstances around it, but I ended up going over to her house after school, maybe for a play date or something, I don't know. And it was everything that I dreamed it to be. It was, you walk in, it was this beautiful house and her parents were smiling and we had lots of fun playing with all her toys. And of course she had all the latest, new, coolest toys. These were black, brown people. This was a black, brown family that I wanted to have. I wanted to have that, right? And so, I mean, those are, those were, that was up to fifth grade. And, you know, and from ages like 14 to 21, you know, we're, we're coming into a lot of like turmoil for me in those ages. So I was homeless. I was in living on people's couches. I was in and out of shelters. I was, you know, finding different places to live. And, and a lot of those, if not all of them, but a lot of them, a majority of them were in black brown houses. I remember, um, Actually, before I was a runaway and before I was uh, doing that, I remember I would go visit my friend in her apartment complex and next door to her lived this Haitian woman, this Haitian, this, she was pregnant and I would just wave to her because she was pregnant. She was knife shoot. She would wave. And then I remember one time when I went to visit my friend, this Haitian woman was outside her, you know, her front door sweeping and she was holding her baby in her arms. And I was like, oh, you know, and she, she waved for me to come over because she wanted to show me her baby. And that's what started, you know, me visiting her home. She would bring me in her home and it would smell like the food she was cooking and she was constantly cleaning and she would talk about you know, Haitian people and her country and the pride that she had and what, you know, that, that, that they were workers and they worked hard and, and they just wanted to, you know, provide for themselves. And, and at one point, you know, she was teaching me how to, you know, she was sweeping, I was mopping, like it, it was an amazing experience. And, and she shared a lot of her culture in, in her life with me this, you know, little white girl at, at such a young age. But as I, you know, as I did get older between the ages of 14 and 21, you know, I was, you know, dating black, black men, black boys, um, black and brown people. And I was constantly in and out of those homes. I was in and out of those churches, the American black churches, the gospel revivals. Oh my gosh. At Sunrise Musical Center. If I got any black, brown people listening to me right now, you know what I'm talking about. Kirk Franklin, Cece Winans, Mahalia Jackson, like just just all the get downs that happened at Sunrise Musical Center. I mean, listen, there were no Stations of the Cross or rosaries in sight yet in my life. Like none of that was happening in my life. It was it was all the black, brown American religious experience if I was having any religious experiences at all. I I ended up dating um, a couple young men who were West Indian, right? Who came from the islands, um, Jamaican, uh, St. Vincent, uh, you know, Trinidad and Tobago. You know, I was, I was mixed up in in, in all of those West Indian cultures, right? Uh, the language, the wagwam, you know, come on. Aki and saltfish, jumping in carnivals, dance hall. You know, it's like 
those were my experiences in my life. And they, they, they helped form me and who I am, especially today. You know, in those relationships, I have biracial children. You know, my son, my firstborn is, his father is American black. You know, my daughter Esperanza, her father was Jamaican. Um, my daughter, Vanessa, her biological father is Jamaican Chinese. You know, that was for the first 20 something years of my life, my lived experiences, the 90% of my lived experiences were in the black brown community. So by the time I was now in my early 20s and I met my now husband who is Hispanic, he's brown, um, and in that relationship with him, I started to find healing for a lot of the, the, the traumatic um, situations that I experienced growing up. And in, in that healing and in that new life, which was so different than the life I had known before, I began to associate and believe that my black-brown experiences were something negative, that it was something that I should forget and, and kind of leave behind. And I ended up, because of that, really never sharing it with my kids, or at least not too much. I mean, there would be what I would call remnants of having all of those black-brown experiences um, and it's actually taken me some time and, and, and discernment to really learn the truth about my black-brown experiences as a white person, more specifically a white female. And that this is, this is my white experience in black culture. And you don't have to like it. You know, you don't have to even approve of it. It's, it's not there for you to even have any agency over it, right? It's, it's my life experiences and no one can silence it because it's mine. <laughs> it's mine. And no one can take my agency of it away because of the color of my skin. And unfortunately, that's what I've been hearing in society and even just personally recently that because my skin is white, I am not allowed to share my black-brown experiences. And I'm here to tell you folks, that's called racism. That's true racism. Because I didn't ask for the life that, that I've lived. I was a participant in what life handed me. You know, as a child, you know, we dream of becoming astronauts or doctors or teachers. I didn't dream of becoming homeless and pregnant and, you know, all of these experiences in the black, brown community and culture that I've had. That's not what I set out to do. It's what happened. And I'm only realizing now for the first time that it's it's not anything to to be ashamed of. It's, it's beautiful. And the reason why it's beautiful is because in all of my experiences in black culture, all of the black brown people that I've ever experienced, right? They've all welcomed me. They all 
taught me something. They, they all, and with pride, they taught me something about their race. They taught me something about their culture. They wanted me to taste their food. They wanted me to dress, you know, in their dress and experience what they love about themselves. They wanted me to speak the language. They wanted me to know the traditions. Now, remember, they wanted me, this white girl, to do all these things with them because their race, they were using their race, their black and brown colors, they were using that as a point of unity and connection with me. That's what they were doing. That's what my experience with black and brown people has always been. They weren't using their their race, their color, all of the things that make them who they are as a point of division with me because I was white. They never did that. And and I and because of that, I felt loved and included. That's true diversity. And inclusion is when someone is the opposite color of you. And yeah, you see that they are, but you still welcome and love them and show them what is beautiful about your people. The example that I want to share with you in regards to this is I have, um, our family has an Indian friend, right? He's, he's over here in the United States for quite a few years and he became close to our family And his mom, um, who lives in India, was coming to visit him. And he asked his mom to bring over, as a gift for me, this beautiful blue and gold sari outfit, right? This traditional Indian outfit. And he gifted it to me. And I was so blown away by it. But I also couldn't help thinking how wrong our society is has labeled these types of things, right? You go on social media and it's happening mainly with white people. This, you know, you read, oh, this white actress was wearing this traditionally Hindu or whatever garb or wardrobe or outfit and and that's offensive, right? That's cultural appropriation. No, no, people, it's not Why would people of other races and cultures gift to people those types of things? Let me answer that for you. Because they are proud of them. Because they find them beautiful. Because they want to see you in them. Because it makes them happy. They want you to go out and show the world that you think it's beautiful too. That's why it happens. You think my Indian friend had his mom bring straight from India, I don't know if you guys realize how long that flight is, a sari to give to me, a white woman? And and don't think that they won't be offended if I don't wear it and they don't see me wearing it in church like when I see them. Of course they will be. Of course they will be if I don't wear it. It's the opposite of the lie that our culture is telling out there. And, and, and that is what is important to know, that our culture is lying to us about these things. It's creating these types of ideas in our heads that are false. And what they do is they create even more division between different races and cultures and religion. We really need to come to a point 
in our hearts where we can acknowledge that we come from many different places. We speak many different languages. We eat different foods. We sing different songs. And we are absolutely different colors. But the thing that is the same about all of us is that we're human beings. And more importantly, we're human beings created in the image of God. And solely because of that, we all carry the equality of human dignity that is identical. That's the same. That's the truth. Now, there are people who don't treat other people with that same equality. And that's, that's sad. That's absolutely sad and it's wrong. But it is not the truth of how we were created and who we are. One of my greatest pet peeves is, you know, this, this, <laughs> this saying, you know, God is colorblind. I was, I was years ago, I was in Nebraska for a talk, one of my first talks ever in my ministry. And I was in the rental car and I'm driving down this highway um, from the, from this small regional airport heading to this, to this talk. And I'm driving, I see this billboard and it says, God is colorblind, Right. That's what it says. And it, you know, it's just this whole thing about end racism and all this stuff, right? And I remember seeing it and I just remember being so disgusted by it. And the reason why I was just disgusted by it is because it's a lie. It's not the truth. And let me explain to you why. God created color. He's the creator of it. Not Crayola, God. Okay, God is the one who created all of our colors. He's the one who did it. He created colors. He knows colors because he created them. He actually finds colors something beautiful, right? And that is what I truly believe he's hoping, you know, that we can learn and understand too. That to look at somebody and say, oh, that is a black person. Great. You can acknowledge that they're a black person. And then what do you do next? You get on with your life. Okay. You Oh, that's a beautiful black person. That's a beautiful yellow person. That's a beautiful brown person. That's a beautiful white person. We are supposed to see the color of someone's skin. But what we're not supposed to do is judge them solely on that. And that's what the problem is. And it's happening, folks. The truth is, it's happening on all sides and in every color, not just black and white. We need to be very careful, very, very careful when we see someone and we don't know, we haven't taken the time to create a relationship with them and learn who they are as a person, what type of character they have. We really need to be careful. I'm going to give you an example. Um, a couple years ago, my husband started his own business again after coming out of the startup world, and he didn't have an office, right? Um, he couldn't work from home. It was a little crazy. We didn't have a, a home office, 
and he he didn't have an office out there because it was his own business. And so we decided that the best thing to do was to buy a nice car that could be his office. He would basically work out of his car. And so we needed a car that basically inside of it, it, you know, it, 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 there was no sound that could get in. It, it drove smoothly. It was basically an office on wheels. And so I went to CarMax and I wasn't planning on getting this car. It's just, that's what actually just happened. But I ended up purchasing for him as this office on wheels, uh, a Jaguar, a Jaguar. Yeah. Um, it's considered a luxury car. Now it, we eventually did have an, build an office for him and now he has it. But so we have this Jaguar vehicle and we live in Los Angeles. And if I get into the Jaguar and I drive to the grocery store and I step out of that Jaguar, okay, what do you think about me? Who, who do you think I am? Because right now you're, you're, imagine this, you're seeing a white woman, very, very, very good dresser. <laughs> I had to throw that in. I had to throw that in. Cause I do like, I do like to wear nice clothes and, and have a little bit of style. That's the artist in me, but I, I'll, I'll stop bragging, but nicely dressed. We'll just say that stepping out of a luxury vehicle and I get looks all the time from people and you know what those looks share with me? Oh, rich white lady. That's what that, that, that's what, that, those are the looks that I get. These looks of disgust. Oh my gosh, look at the white privilege oozing out of that Jaguar. Those are the looks that I get. And listen, if you know anything about me or if you've listened to any part of this podcast and the experiences that I've shared with you, you will know how absolutely wrong that impression of me is. And that's what I want to warn everybody about. You've got to stop, even though you got your little signs in your yards talking about this and that, and this is what's important, and this is what I believe in. It's like, yeah, but you're still doing it. You're still judging people based on the color of their skin and what you see on the outside of them. It happens to me all the time. And that is the change that we need to make. So as you know, I have a multiracial family. Um, my dad's Italian. My mom is um, European, red hair, green eyes. Um, so I'm a mix, right? Um, my, bad, my dad's you know, dark Italian, dark hair, dark eyes, you know, very tan skin. Um, my mom's the opposite. And my children um, are Hispanic or they're, you know, black and me, basically. So they are biracial, multiracial, whatever, you know, whatever the new acceptable term is for that nowadays. Um, I'm not looking to offend, but um, that's my family. And I have a husband who's Hispanic. So there's an entire brown culture on that side of, of, of the family. And we have a granddaughter who, you know, is also 
considered biracial, but honestly, I mean, the only non-black in her is the part that comes from me. <laughs> so let's just say she's more black brown than she is anything else. Um, and, and that's my family. I also have um, Asian people in my family that, that, that have married members of my family. So we have a very multicultural, um, multiracial family. And I'm sharing that with you because I think it's important for me to at least, you know, in closing this podcast and my experiences, to offer some type of advice or tip um, for other people. Now, maybe you are a white person with a white family. Maybe you are a black or brown person with a black family. The, The one thing that I like to share with people because it helps them to get an understanding of how to really truly be diverse and inclusive, right? And that's to think outside of your color. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Think outside of your color. So what is usually normal for people, and it's it's instinctual, it's just a part of who we are as humans, we tend to group ourselves in the same groups, right? You know, for example, you have a... Uh, like we have English bulldogs. So we get together or we used to, not anymore, but we used to get together with other people who had English bulldogs, right? So what we do, what we tend to do naturally as human beings is find these similarities and, and group ourselves in those. And so the first thing, my first advice is don't be so hard on yourself. Don't be so hard on yourself if you look at your life and you're analyzing it and all this whole, you know, become woke about diversity and inclusion and you realize, well, wait a minute, I am pretty, you know, I'm, I'm insular as far as, you know, my color groups here. That's okay. That's okay. Don't beat yourself up about it. But here is also what you can do to help change that because I do believe that there's lots of room for becoming more diverse in your daily life, especially in raising your kids. And this goes for people of all colors. One of the examples that I give are the toys your children's play your, your children play with. You know, for girls in particular, um, who for the most part and the majority of like to play with dolls and have doll houses and play house. That was me growing up. If you went into your child's bedroom and looked at the toys especially a dollhouse and the dolls that they have do the dolls that they play with represent the color of their skin or do they represent a diverse people right so for example you know your barbie is white because your daughter is white okay for instance um or your son um and so all of her barbies are white Okay, well, here's a tip. They don't have to be. You don't have to have all white Barbies if you're an all white family. And the same goes for black and brown families. That, it's so simple. Like if you start when they're little, incorporating those differences into your life. Eat different foods. Uh, you know, with, with in our house, we, we would 
travel. We would show our kids different cultures. We would order different foods. There's a rule in our house where, no, you have to at least take one bite and taste it. If you don't like it, fine. You don't have to eat anymore, but you have to at least try. It's this idea of going outside of what we know and what we're comfortable with. So that's, I think it's a pretty simple thing that we could start doing to help allow ourselves. And again, I stress this. Every single race of people can incorporate this. Every single one. You know, having shared all this on this podcast with you, it's pretty, it feels really good. I'm not going to lie because it's something that I, that's been inside of me for quite a long time now. And, um, and I'm just really happy to share, you know, these experiences with you and these experiences in particular, my black brown experiences as a white person. The one thing that I do want to clarify, I never believed I was a black person, nor did I ever want to be a black brown person. But what I did believe was that the black brown culture that I was immersed in um, I felt welcomed in and, and I was loved and still am loved in that culture. And my heart breaks to see that type of unity um, and welcoming end. And I, and I really hope that that's not the case. But, you know, that's what my heart is feeling. Truth be told, and I'll say it again and I'll close out with this. We are all created in the image of God. We are all equal in the dignity and the worth that we have. And it is up to us as Christians especially to lead the movement of Christ-centered love and treatment of every human being that we encounter identifying, acknowledging the beauty in their color, in their language, in their culture, and allowing ourselves to use all of that, not as a way to divide us, but as a way to bring us and keep us all together. God bless you. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe and spread the word. Tell your friends and family on social media to leave us a five-star review. Make sure to check the show notes for helpful links about topics discussed in this episode. Jess's latest book, Dazzled, Finding the Key to Perfect Forgiveness, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Balboa Press, as well as Momaletics.com. That's M-O-M-M-A-L-E-T-I-C-S.com, where you can also connect with her directly. Thanks for listening, and make sure you join us next time for more heart-to-heart and good feelings in your soul on Divine Wisdom from the Kitchen.